Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the killing of a popular reporter for Al Jazeera, Shireen Abu Akhtay, who has covered the Palestinian territories for 25 years and is an American citizen. Joining us is David Hurst, the editor of Middle East Eye, who was formerly the chief foreign leader writer of The Guardian, former associate foreign editor, European editor, Moscow bureau chief, European correspondent and Ireland correspondent. His latest article at Middle East Eye is Shireen Abu Akhle's Killing, The West Cannot Wash Away the Stain of Complicity, and we'll discuss the backpedaling by Israeli authorities who initially blamed Palestinian gunmen but it's becoming more and more likely she was killed by a sniper with the Israeli Defense Forces who shot her in the neck, which was unprotected since she was wearing a blue helmet and flak jacket clearly marked back and front with the word press. Then we'll examine a concerted effort by the European Union to stop financing Putin's war against Ukraine that is threatening NATO by banning the imports of Russian oil, which all member states have signed on to except for Hungary. Putin's friend, the kleptocratic Prime Minister Viktor Orban, is holding out for a greater compensation package, and we'll discuss the dilemma for the EU, which is cutting off funds to Orban because of his illiberal anti-democratic regime, at the same time being forced to bribe him to join the ban on Russian oil. Joining us is Kim Lane Shapley, a professor of sociology and international affairs at Princeton University. From 1994 to 1998, she lived in Budapest doing research at the Constitutional Court of Hungary and teaching at both the University of Budapest and at Central European University. After 1989, Shepley studied the emergence of constitutional law in Hungary and Russia, living in both places for extended periods. She's the author of The International State of Emergency, The Rise of Global Security Law in 9-11, and The Rise of Global Anti-Terrorism Law, How the UN Security Council Rules the World, and we will discuss why Orban is the favorite role model of pro-Putin American Christian nationalists and authoritarians like Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump. Then finally, with today's announcement that the U.S. has passed the one million deaths threshold of COVID victims, we will speak with Andrew Neumer, epidemiologist and professor of population health and disease prevention at the University of California, Irvine. We'll also discuss the global death toll from covid of 6,283,388, which is more likely to be 14,910,000, according to the World Health Organization's excess mortality figures. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now from the UK is David Hurst, the editor of Middle East Eye, who formerly was the chief foreign leader writer of The Guardian and a former associate foreign editor, European editor, Moscow bureau chief, European correspondent and Ireland correspondent, and his latest article at 
the Middle East eye is Shireen Abu Akleh killing the West cannot wash away the stain of complicity. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Hurst. Hi, Ian. Hi. Thanks for joining us, David. And there was quite an emotional funeral today in Ramallah, presided over by Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, who said he can't trust the Israeli authorities to investigate the murder of this very, very popular journalist, Shireen Abu Akleh of Al Jazeera, and he called on taking the case to the International Criminal Court. Now, Israel's not a signatory to the ICC, right? No, it's not. And uh, it's also any, any reference or any previous reference to the ICC has also been dissuaded by, by the State Department and by America. So America is against referring uh, against any ICC investigation into Israel. But they're pushing to get the ICC to investigate Ukraine. They are indeed. Um, and that's not the only uh, 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 anomaly. As after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist in uh, the Saudi um, consulate in, in Istanbul, America investigated, or the CIA investigated the kidding and concluded that the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, was responsible. And that really has led to three years of frozen relations between uh, America and its, and its closest Gulf ally, which still hasn't been solved despite the oil crisis. Now, Jamal Khashoggi was uh, a resident of Virginia, but he was not a U.S. citizen. Shirin Abu Akleh is actually full-fledged um, American citizen. And the contrast between the two is very, very telling. The, the, the first thing that the U.S. Embassy in, in Jerusalem, in Israel, did was to retweet two uh, videos that the Israeli army had put out, which suggested that, which seemed to support the case, that the group of journalists in, in which Shireen was in were victim of, of Palestinian fire, not Israeli sniper fire. Uh, this, of course, has been roundly debunked as a theory, not least by the Israeli NGO Betzalem, and and other people as well have geolocated the scenes of the fighting in the alleyways and geolocated where Shireen and others were hit as they came out the car, and there's just no way in which there's no line of sight in which they could have been hit by a Palestinian firing. In addition to that. The Palestinian fighters would never have used the area in which they were in to fight the Israelis because there's no cover. It was a roundabout outside the camp. In addition to that, the, the Palestinian fighters used automatic gunfire, and this was very, very precise single bullets from a sniper rifle that hit. Um, and the MEE uh, Middle East side published a sort of first-hand account. One of our contributors was right next to Shireen as she was dying uh, after she had been hit through the neck. Again, she, the bullet hit through the <coughs> neck that's between the flak jacket that she was wearing and the helmet she was wearing. So it was a very, very precise shot. So, and, and others were also targeted in, 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 in the same uh, way. So I, I, at the moment, I think what's happening is Israel is, or has been rowing back on the theory that it was Palestinian fire and... They've launched their own internal investigation to this, but um, as we've seen with other investigations in the past and, and, and their 
and there has been uh, there was a referral of four other journalists in Gaza who were either killed or maimed by Israeli fire. That's been sent to the ICC as well. That was two weeks ago. I, I'm not holding my breath that um, anything will come of Shireen's killing. Well, she's very famous and well-known across the Arab world because of her appearances on Al Jazeera. So is it possible that the sniper knew who he was shooting? I mean, the fact is... He, she was wearing one of those blue flag jackets that has a big sign on it, not front and back press. And as you point out, the only part of her that was not protected was her neck. And that's where this precise shot killed her. So is that a conceivable notion that this was a deliberate killing because of her? It, 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 is, it, is, it is highly conceivable. One, one is that they didn't just, this group of journalists didn't just get out the car. They stayed there for 10 minutes uh, within sight of the Israeli troops, and it was only when they started walking uphill towards the camp that they came under fire. There were no warning shots. And presumably, if uh, a sniper rifle is capable of uh, being that precise uh, about its target, it's also capable of seeing the words press written front and back over her, her vest, as was press written front and back over all the other journalists who were, who, who, who were there. In addition to that, my understanding is that every single time, I think AFP was there as well, um, and Al Jazeera go to combat areas in, 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 in where, where the IDF are, are operating, they tell the IDF in advance so not only did this group of journalists make themselves completely visible to soldiers as they approached Janine camp before getting out of their cars and, and, and going up the hill, um, but my understanding is that at least two of the organizations involved actually phoned the Israeli army first to say, by the way, our reporters are going to be in that area. And again, I'm speaking with David Hurst, who's in the UK. He's the editor of Middle East Eye. He was formerly the chief foreign leader writer of The Guardian, former associate foreign editor, European editor, Moscow bureau chief, European correspondent and Ireland correspondent. And his latest article at the Middle East Eye is Shireen Abu Akleh's killing. The West cannot wash away the stain of complicity. Well, the IDF's spokesman, Amin Scheffler, late on Wednesday told CNN that the Israelis, quote, just don't know yet. Who killed Abba Akleh? So which, that's a bit of a retreat from their earlier statements and Prime Minister Bennett's statements as well. Yes, it is. And they're, they're, they're now talking about fire that could have gone up the hill or northwards as opposed to uh, southwards from, from, from the camp itself. I mean, the journalists there were absolutely under no doubt uh, who they were under fire from. As far as Shireen is concerned. She was very much um, the face to at least uh, the Palestinian and Arab audience of the Second Intifada. She was a veteran correspondent. She stuck to the story, which is why she uh, was in Janine at, at the time. She was entirely professional. She wasn't linked to any group uh, or, or Palestinian faction. And she spoke the truth as she saw it. She, uh, she was one of, one of quite a few brave very brave Palestinian women who don't take the money and run and who stick with the story and keep on, broad and keep on uh, broadcasting it. There's every incentive for the Israeli army to stop her telling 
uh, that story as they've done before. Uh, you've got to remember that this is not the first attack uh, on a group of journalists uh, in the Gaza uh, war last year. Israel bombed a block of flats, or levelled it, in which AJ uh, and other press agencies, media organisations were there. They claimed that uh, one element of Hamas had, 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 had used the building, but this was entirely a press building. They did warn in advance they were going to level the building and everyone got out, but they have not been shy of attacking specifically um, the media targets to, to intimidate the, them and or stop the coverage. And, you know, uh, the politicians are, are, are pretty brazen about it. They, they say, at least the extreme right say, there's no problem in, in shooting journalists because uh, Al Jazeera in particular are always there stopping us from, from getting the real people. I think there's a quote from, from one of the IDF spokesmen saying that, you know, the Palestinians were armed with uh, rifles and the journalists were armed with cameras. So there's a huge amount of hostility in Israel and, and in the army to independent reporting of what's going on in Palestinian areas. And Shireen Abu of course was a Roman Catholic, as a matter of fact, and a funeral will take place on Friday at a Roman Catholic church, and uh, she'll be buried in Jerusalem's uh, Mount Zion Cemetery next to her parents. David, let's just go back to some of your early reporting, because to my mind, the biggest untold story and underreported story is this alliance between Putin, MBS, and MBZ, this alliance between a fascist Petro state and these feudal Petro states, and they're clearly working together. And though most people find it hard to understand why Putin is doing what he's doing in Ukraine, it seems irrational. It's nevertheless resulted in a massive rise in the price of oil, which he's profiting from. And so is MBS and MBZ. They they lost a lot of money during the COVID lockdowns, because the price of oil dropped down to about $20 a barrel. So it does seem that there's a strategy here to basically weaken Biden, which is happening manifestly. Inflation, which is largely driven by the price of oil, is the biggest issue over here. According to polls, people are more concerned about that than anything else. So it's very likely that the midterm elections will go badly for the Democrats and for Biden. And it looks as though MBS, he just gave $2 billion to Jared Kushner. So that could be a down payment on bringing back Trump. And, of course, MBS has got enormous amounts of funds. So it looks as if that's their strategy. They're hanging Biden out to dry. They won't even take his phone calls. They won't pump more oil to help him out and to help out the American consumer. So is this something that you feel, as I do, is being underreported? Well, yes. I mean, I think the war strategy, uh, at least the Western one, is a bit of a runaway train. And NATO and America and Britain and everyone, Europe has imposed these sanctions on, on Putin. What Putin is playing for is a long war. And the longer the war goes on, uh, the more um, the Western sanctions on Russia will blow back on, on, on Europe in terms of high inflation, 
in terms of recession. Germany has warned that it could go into recession because it will cut itself off from from cheap oil and and and, and, and Russian gas. And exactly the same as in uh, America, the the main issue in Britain is in rising prices of fuel and and food and basic commodities and basically uh, inflation, which is which by the end of the year here will reach something like 10 percent. So and it is absolutely what Putin wants. Now, Putin's the the reaction to the invasion of Ukraine has been very different in very different parts of the world. And you could be forgiven for thinking, just looking at the Western media, that everyone is behind the West. And it's not. Turkey is a different policy. Turkey's still got relations with, with both sides, although they provided most of the drones that, that Ukraine is using very effectively against uh, Russian troops. But more specifically, um, in the Gulf, you have a, a very uh, ambivalent policy, both by the UAE, by MBZ, and and Mohammed bin Salman. It's got to be remembered that Mohammed bin Salman has always personally admired Putin. When Putin sent two thugs to kill, to poison a a, a Russian that had been got out the country by MI6 and was guarded as a traitor in London, a former spy. Uh, in the Salisbury poisoning I'm, I'm talking about, he he uh, told his advisors, this is uh, Mohammed bin Salman, why can't I do this? Why, you know, Putin's got this great um, secret killer squad, uh, assassination squad. Then he went to his interior minister and said, um, can I use your forces to do it? And he, and he said no. So he actually created what was then called, out of his own bodyguards, Tiger Squad. And it was a Tiger Squad that killed Jamal Khashoggi and and tried to kill another exile in in Toronto, uh, Saad al-Jabri. So Putin's very much a sort of mentor, in a sense, to the crown prince. And the policy is enormously profitable. Uh, Aramco has just become bigger than Apple as the biggest, the richest concern or company uh, in the world. And that's entirely due to the price of oil, which will keep on going straight up. So this isn't merely what Putin's policy is all about, i.e. making the West bleed for its economic warfare, as he puts it, on on Moscow. It is blowback from our own decisions and our own policies. And the only person that's talking about it over here is uh, Congressman Tom Malinowski, a former State Department official, uh, who talks about how the Gulf and Saudi Arabia are laundering Russian money and that these people are not our allies. Yeah, I mean, this, sorry, I mean, on the laundering side of things, I was just specifically talking about the effect of the price of the oil. But you're right, because there are, there are lots of things going on here. One is that an, uh, the, the Russian oligarchs are all heading to, to, to Dubai and they're using that, that financial center. The second thing that's happening, which is really interesting, and we're actually investigating at the moment, is the transfer of gold from Sudan uh, through, through Dubai to Russia, because to prepare for what he knew would be a whole series of, of Western sanctions, Putin built up his gold reserves. How did he do that? He did it through the Emirati companies, he did it through Wagner, who is these uh, mercenaries, an army of mercenaries that are actually in uh, Sudan uh, at the moment. And, and they got an awful lot of gold 
back into the coffers uh, of the Kremlin to back up the squeeze on foreign currency that they knew that they would have to suffer as a result of the sanctions that they knew would be imposed. So the Emiratis are involved in Russia both uh, in many ways. One is it's the place where rich Russians will go uh, for their, to, to hide their money. Uh, two, they're profiting from their relationship with, with Putin. And three, they're involved in the transfer of gold from Sudan. Well, David Hurst, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Thanks a lot. And again, I've been speaking with David Hurst, who's the editor of Middle East Eye. He was formerly the chief foreign leader, writer of The Guardian, and the former associate foreign editor, European editor, Moscow bureau chief, European correspondent and Ireland correspondent of The Guardian. And his latest article at the Middle East Eye is Shireen Abu Akhle killing the West cannot wash away the stain of complicity. And he joined us from the UK. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the concerted effort by the European Union to stop financing Putin's war against Ukraine which all member states have signed on to except for Hungary. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Kim Lane Shepley, who is a professor of sociology and international affairs in the Woodrow Wilson School at the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University from 1994 to 1998. She lived in Budapest doing research at the Constitutional Court of Hungary and teaching at both the University of Budapest and the Central European University, where she was a founding director of the program on gender and culture. After 1989, Shepley studied the emergence of constitutional law in Hungary and Russia, living in both places for extended periods, and she's the author of The International State of Emergency, The Rise of Global Security Law, and 9-11 and the Rise of Global Anti-Terrorism Law, How the UN Security Council Rules the World. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kim Lane Shepley. Well, it's lovely to be back, but you know, one little thing changed in that intro since I talked to you last, and that is... Princeton took Woodrow Wilson's name off the policy school. So we're just now the the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. Uh, Well, I will definitely (laughs) stick with that in the future. And I guess Woodrow Wilson was, he may have had the League of Nations, he may have been a peacemaker, but he was also a terrible racist, was he not? He was. And actually, it's relevant to our topic for today, because, of course, Woodrow Wilson was one of the post-World War I leaders that presided over carving up the Austro-Hungarian Empire so that each ethnic group had its own state. And uh, in other words, it was segregationism brought to Eastern Europe. And that's why the map looks the way it does. So we've spoken before about Viktor Orban, the wily and long-serving prime minister of Hungary who just got re-elected in a rigged election. On Wednesday, the head of the EU, Ursula von der Leyen, went to Budapest, hat in hand, basically to bribe him, and he was angling for a bribe, and they didn't reach a deal, 
but he wants they, they talked about a financial compensation package because clearly the Europeans need to stop financing Putin's war and they, about a, a billion dollars a day goes from Europe into Putin's coffers to prosecute this war in Ukraine so they they need unanimity and he's not providing it so this seems like a perfect opportunity for him to shake down the Europeans. Well, and Orban never lets an opportunity go to waste. <laughs> so indeed, when Ursula von der Leyen visited Budapest this week, she was looking for some compromise. And and typically in the EU, there's not a lot that you can't fix through money. And of course, you know, with the EU and Orban right now, money is actually an issue because finally, after all these years, the European Union passed a new law that allows the European Commission, with the, with the Council of Ministers' approval, to cut funds to member states that run a giant risk of misspending them. And Orban is well known for leading the most corrupt state in the EU. EU money goes into the pockets of his friends. That by now has been well documented. And so just after Orban's election on April 3rd, on April 4th, the EU sent him a notice that indeed they were going to start the proceeding to cut all of his funds. So it's an awkward thing right now, right, for the EU to go and say, well, here, we'll give you money if you agree to cut back your use of Russian energy supplies. So, you know, Orban's going to milk it for all it's worth. He needs the money from the EU. And if the EU is willing to give it to him, on this one channel while they're cutting it on the other channel, well, I don't know where the EU stands then with regard to European values. And are there any other options? I mean, they have to have a unanimous vote, right? And I understand that normally whenever the EU goes after Orban for his kleptocracy and, and for these particularly abusing these agricultural subsidies which go into the pockets of his cronies, uh, recently, I guess, as a as a way to sort of throw a bone to the EU, he fired somebody inside the Prime Minister's office who was engaged in bribery. <laughs> right, <laughs> <But> right. <laughs> that's what he does, right? <laughs> right. Well, he's been doing this. He's been doling out uh, people from his party who have fallen into disfavor by launching corruption investigations against them whenever the EU gets serious about cutting his funds. But, you know, if, if most of them are corrupt, throwing out one or two for public consumption won't really fix the problem. You know, but the, the issue with, uh, with Orban and the, and the, the gas and, and oil subsidies, um, it's true that the EU requires unanimity for any matter dealing with sort of EU foreign policy. But the EU also has another way around it, and that is, and the, and the EU's used this on a number of occasions, they take the member states who are willing to agree to whatever foreign policy it is they want, and they write an agreement between um, those member states. Like, so the EU brokers a deal among the, if Orban is out, then let's say among the 26 remaining states, and then the 26 remaining states will put up a united front against Russia. So, you know, all of that is possible. They've done that before with regard to some other things. The trickier part of this with regard to energy supplies is that, of course, the point is to try to keep money from going into the Russian state's pockets. And Orban has already violated uh, some EU, shall we say, urgings 
by agreeing to pay the Russian government in rubles, which is how they want to try to keep money flowing when the West has blocked their access to dollar exchanges. And Orban is quite willing to go along. And frankly, he has the Hungarian public behind him because the war, when the war broke out, uh, it was right in the middle of the Hungarian election campaign. He had just come back from seeing Putin. Putin had just promised Hungary lower energy prices than any other state in the EU. And this was going to be Orban's big pitch to his electorate. You know, vote for me and I'll give you cheap utilities. Right. So the war looked like it threw a bit of a monkey wrench into that. It looked like sidling up to Putin was a bad idea. And it took Orban only a couple of days to pivot to a new campaign slogan, which was peace and security. And the pitch he made to the electorate was, I will not take this country into war and I will not provoke a war. So he has been refusing, even though he's a member of NATO, to allow NATO weapons to transit Hungary. He's been refusing, in fact, for a while he was refusing even to participate in NATO exercises that would have shored up NATO's eastern flank and looked more fierce to Putin. He finally caved in, but you know, only slightly. He's been putting a monkey wrench into all of the United efforts that both NATO and the EU have had against, uh, against Russia. And he got elected because he said, you know, I, because I have such good relations with Putin, I can be the peacemaker. I understand this guy, you know, I will not provoke him and Hungary will not go to war. <laughs> and that pitch, uh, and plus then he lied and he said the opposition will take you into, into war at a moment's notice because Orban controls the press. The opposition didn't have any chance to get out his message that, in fact, you know, they hadn't said that at all. But Orban's overwhelming victory was because he portrayed himself as the middleman, so to speak, or the mediator, or the one who hadn't taken sides between the EU and Russia. So this is a very positive pitch for him in Hungary, and he's going to play this for all it's worth. And again, we're speaking with Kim Lane Shepley, who's a professor of sociology and international affairs at Princeton University. And from 1994 to 1998, she lived in Budapest doing research at the Constitutional Court of Hungary and teaching both at the University of Budapest and the Central European University, where she was a founding director of the program in Gender and Culture. After 1989, Shapley studied the emergence of constitutional law in Hungary and Russia, living in both places for extended periods. And she's the author of The International State of Emergency, the Rise of Global Security Law, and The Rise of Global Anti-Terrorism Law, How the UN Security Council Rules the World. But since he controls the media just as Putin does, apparently the state media in Hungary, or it's actually it's independent, but it's run by Orban's cronies, is full of Russian propaganda. So I don't understand uh, what's happening with the Hungarian people. Don't they remember what happened in 1956 when the Soviets brutally invaded? Well, yes. Uh, so, but, you know, of course, Orban's also rewritten the history of 1956, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, literally, Orban's minions have been rewriting the history books, rewriting, you know, um, basically sort of the giant history of the Hungarian people. And it's not like Russia has traditionally been their buddy, obviously not, you know, from the communist time. But remember that Hungary was permitted after 1956, to engage in much more liberalizing reform. 
than any of the other Soviet satellite states were permitted to engage in. And so Hungary was routinely called through the 70s and 80s the happiest barracks in the camp. And people look back on that period now with quite a lot of nostalgia because that was a period in which uh, things were pretty good for the Hungarians, especially compared with others. And so what they learned is that if you cooperate with, well, now the Russians, then the Soviets, they will reward you with an abundance of liberalization and with a kind of security that the neighbors didn't have. So 56 is very much buried as a memory. And what's being pulled up is the Soviet largesse to Hungary in the 60s and 70s and 80s when they undertook these economic reforms. Russia then looks like their buddy. Well, he's lost his support in Poland and in Slovakia. And of course, Le Pen didn't get elected in France, even though Orban stumped for her and supported her. So is that going to put any pressure on him? The fact that, he, you know, the Poles normally backed him up whenever they went after him, the EU went after him, the Poles would step in and, and rescue him. That's not happening anymore. And Zelensky is furious with him. So I'm just wondering if there's anything that can stop this guy who's stopping the EU from uh, an oil ban on Russia, which would have a real effect. It's true. Now, I think the EU can do the oil ban anyway by just skirting Orban and making it a 26-country agreement, you know, among themselves, leaving out Orban. So I think they have a way around it. The question is what that does for his relations with other states. And and here, the Polish government has been walking an interesting tightrope. So on one hand, they clearly abhor, you know, Orban's cozying up to Russia because, you know, Poles are, shall we say, no friends of Russia, never have been, never will be. So this has always been a potential dividing line between the two countries. But when it comes to domestic matters, right? when it comes to domestic nationalism, and in particular when it comes to standing up to the EU's efforts to try to get these two governments to go back to being robust democratic states, there Orban and his, his buddy Mr. Kaczynski in Poland are, I think, still on the same page. So I think that the relationship between Poland and Hungary is strong enough that disagreements about foreign policy will not actually affect their basic agreement about whether the EU is entitled to come in and tell them how to remake their domestic political systems. So I think they'll collaborate on some things and agree to differ on other things. But all of that means that I don't see the EU being able to come down with the ultimate sanction against Hungary which is to remove its vote in European affairs, they can only do that if Poland decides to vote against Hungary, and I don't see that coming. And in terms of the United States, Orban has become a champion of the MAGA crowd here in the United States, and of course Trump uh, faded him at the White House, which no other Western European country would do. And Tucker Carlson of Fox News broadcast from Budapest for a whole week and fawned all over Orban and CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee, are supposed to be holding their convention in Hungary. Is that still happening? Yeah, so it's supposed to happen next week, in fact, May 15th, May 19th, May 20th. CPAC is going to meet in Hungary, and so far as I can see, it's full steam ahead. Because again, remember that Orban has modeled how to do a culture war in public. You know, the, the website for the CPAC meeting says that 
they are um, that that Hungary is quote one of the engines of conservative resistance to the woke revolution, <laughs> right? And that's what the what's attracting the conservatives. What I worry is that what's also attracting them is that Orban shows how visible, how a very visible culture war, sort of anti-political correct, anti-woke, you know, culture war is actually a cover for creeping autocracy beneath the surface. So what I'm wondering is this attraction of the Trump supporters to Orban, is that just about the culture war, which of course the U.S. has had going for a long time? Or are they looking to Orban for instructions in how to distract your public with a culture war while simultaneously capturing and neutralizing democratic institutions so that the the great leader never has to leave office ever again? That's what I worry about. Well, you have some evidence here in the United States, don't you, with this right-wing Supreme Court and also the massive voter suppression that the Republicans are uh, conducting at, at state levels where if they don't like the vote, they can overturn it. And they've, they've gone after key states like Michigan. The head of the elections in Michigan is a complete crazy QAnon person who believes in, I mean, Trump has hoisted this uh, stop the steal lie, which is metastasized into the Republican Party, where 70 to 80% of Republicans believe Trump won the last election. So we're in an Orwellian state here, and not, not to mention what Orban's done in Hungary. Yeah, no, it's true. In fact, I was a little worried Orban would try to copy us here, but he didn't need to. So it turns out, and this is where Orban's people can teach the Trump people a thing or two, what, you know, 20, 21st century autocrats who try to look like they're Democrats now rig elections, not so much by stuffing ballot boxes or through garden variety voter suppression, but they, they win elections because they've rigged the rules. And so what you mentioned, you know, about the taking over the election machinery, putting Trumpists at the head of state election counting, you know, voter counting operations, that's more Orban's playbook. So when he won this election in uh, in April, uh, he won it, you know, again, not because they were stuffing ballot boxes, but because they wrote the rules so that the opposition could not win. And it was a complex system of gerrymandering, which, of course, the U.S. invented and brought to the world. But it also included a whole series of other electoral counting tricks that, in the, you know, in the moment, gave Orban, again, his two-thirds majority in parliament. He probably would have won the election in any event, even without the rigging. But what the rigging did was to give him two-thirds of the seats in a unicameral parliament in which a single two-thirds vote of a of this unicameral parliament is enough to change any law and it's enough to change the constitution. So already Orban hasn't even really formed his cabinet yet. Already his government has introduced into the parliament another constitutional amendment that will change the constitution to allow them to, to declare what may be a permanent state of emergency because of the war next door in Ukraine. So again, Orban has never been one to let a crisis go to waste, and he's going to use the excuse of the Ukraine war to further consolidate his powers through a new constitutional amendment that's being pushed through a few weeks after the election. So that's how he operates. And the question is, are the Republicans learning stuff from him? Well, they are. 
<laughs> yes, the well, illiberal, illiberal autocratic model is clearly taking on, and look what just happened in the Philippines. So there's something right. happening not just to, with these autocrats, but also with their populations. They seem to be giving up on democracy. Well, I think what populations are giving up on is the long procedural slog to lawmaking, compromise, you know, and and sort of checks and balances that characterizes democratic lawmaking. It's almost as if the populations that vote for these autocrats have become, you know, advocates of instant gratification in politics. So when the leader says, I will bring you X, Y, and Z, you know, but I will bypass the parliament, do it by decree, do it by declaring a state of emergency, all because I speak for you, <laughs> they're saying, hell yes, <laughs> right? Why should we put up with the fact that, you know, you look at the Democrats, they can't get anything done, even though they allegedly control, you know, all three Democratic institutions in Washington, they can't get anything done. Why? Because of the rules, because of the procedures. We're not doing that. We're just going to take it all back and do it ourselves, right? So, right? so it's a frustration with procedure, and it's a frustration with compromise, and it's a frustration with the rotation of power. And, and that's dangerous. And this instant gratification, I think, in in large part, comes from social media. And you've got, you know, Zuckerberg and Elon Musk and these libertarian types who basically allowed this forum, this massively powerful uh, social media forum, to be exploited by autocrats. Putin and Orban and uh, Bong Bong Marcos, uh, his entire campaign was done online. He didn't uh, do debates and he wouldn't talk to the press. So, unfortunately, that's the direction... We're heading in, I think. You've got to not only hold Tucker Carlson and Trump responsible, I think you have to hold Zuckerberg and Elon Musk and these people responsible too for the, for this well, toxic political environment. Well, exactly. And I think that, you know, social media has sped up the news cycle so that a news cycle goes from, you know, 2 p.m. to 2.05 p.m. <laughs> and then you're already on to something else. So, you know, it's it people have developed a kind of appetite for this constantly changing drama. You know, it's like watching a soap opera in which there are a million twists and turns to keep everybody engaged, right? Now, the danger of all of that is, of course, what gets people engaged is the culture war part of this, you know? What is more worrisome and what I worry people don't see is that underneath the surface of all of this culture war stuff, is the gradual disintegration of democratic institutions. Maybe it's not even so gradual. That's the point of all these Republican efforts to change the election laws before the midterms and more is coming before the presidential so that essentially the election can be rigged by the election officials inside the system. That's new. And the Democrats, frankly, don't know how to fight that. They're still thinking this is a, their usual war in which if they can just turn out their voters, everything will be okay. But it won't be if the system is rigged. That's the whole point about rigging. But the rigging is a little technical. It's a little complicated. It depends on people being patient enough to listen to an explanation of how, you know, four levels down in the system, somebody's going to flip a switch, you know, and, and people don't have the patience for that, you know. So, so what happens is, you know, you come for the culture war and you stay for the autocracy because the culture war is actually a cover for the consolidation of power so that the people currently in office never have to leave. 
And I think, you know, my guess is that Americans probably would not be in favor of a, of a permanent king, but they don't know that's what they're getting. You know, they think they're fighting for, you know, non-woke textbooks, or they think they're fighting for parental control of the schools, or they think they're fighting now for, you know, abortion uh, or for anti-abortion, you know, but what's underneath all of that is something that, you know, is far more dangerous because it means that people will not be able to go back and they will not be living in a democracy anymore. Well, Kim Lane Shipley, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me back again. And again, I've been speaking with Kim Lane Shepley, who is a professor of sociology and international affairs at Princeton University. And from 1994 to 1998, she lived in Budapest doing research at the Constitutional Court of Hungary and teaching at both the University of Budapest and Central European University, where she was a founding director of the program in gender and culture. After 1989, Shepley studied the emergence of constitutional law in Hungary and Russia, living in both places for extended periods, and she's the author of The International State of Emergency, The Rise of Global Security Law, and 9-11, and The Rise of Global Anti-Terrorism Law, How the UN Security Council Rules the World. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining today's announcement that the U.S. has passed the one million deaths threshold of COVID victims. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Andrew Neumer, who's an epidemiologist and professor of population health and disease prevention at the University of California in Irvine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andrew Neumer. Glad to be back with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Andrew. And President Biden uh, acknowledged the grim milestone of, a, of one million COVID deaths in the United States and most of the one million Americans who died during this pandemic lost their lives after vaccines were introduced. And the Kaiser Family Foundation found that a quarter of the U.S. deaths, that is 234,000 people, could have been prevented with vaccines. So what does that say to you as somebody that works in this field? Well, I mean, I mean, part of that is, uh, has to do with the idiosyncrasies of the timing of the vaccine rollout. The, uh, many people um, still uh, were unable to be vaccinated in the first few months of 2021 when the vaccines were theoretically available but not available for everyone. And that's when a large number of deaths occurred. So the fact that most deaths have occurred after the the vaccines uh, were available is sort of uh, an idiosyncrasy of, of the exact timing of the vaccine rollout. Uh, but, you know, the Kaiser Foundation has found, and and that number sounds about right to me, that, that there are a large number of preventable deaths. Uh, we know these vaccines prevent severe COVID. Uh, unfortunately, they don't prevent uh, all COVID, which is uh, which is part of why we're uh, continuing to to roll on with this pandemic. But vaccines are an amazing 
pieces of uh, public health technology, as I'm sure your listeners, most of whom are probably vaccinated, as I'm sure they will agree. And in terms of the global totals, the global totals, uh, as far as I could tell, are 6,283,388. But then the World Health Organization has another category called excess mortality, and that figure is 14.91 million, which is 9.49 million more than the reported COVID deaths. And that World Health Organization study goes from January, January of 2020 to December 31st of 2021. So tell us what excess mortality means. Well, excess mortality is calculated uh, based on observed deaths compared to what we expect in a certain period, and it's based on all-cause mortality. So if, if, if a given country has a, a million deaths in a time period uh, when 800,000 deaths uh, would, is, is, it would be expected, then, then that gives us an excess of 200,000 deaths. So th the thing to keep in mind is that not all countries' uh, health systems do a good job of tracking every death by by its cause. So when we're in countries like that, we use excess mortality as a way to capture the impact of something unusual like the COVID pandemic. So the higher number, not the 6 million, but the 14 million, is a much better estimate of the total global impact of COVID in terms of mortality. And would that apply to the United States then, that the real number of deaths is, what, uh, compared 6 million to 14 million, it's, almost, it's over double, right? Would, no, so would... well, yeah, but in the United States, we, we do a very good job of tracking each death, which is recorded in a death certificate, and the National Center for Health Statistics uh, tabulates all the death certificates uh, from each of the 50 states in the District of Columbia, so... We have a very tight system of death registration in the in the USA, and uh, so the the true number of COVID deaths is a, in the United States approximately the observed number of COVID deaths. So, so it's closer to a million. So we don't see that sort of double uh, ratio uh, here in in the US. And again, I'm speaking with Andrew Neumer, an epidemiologist and professor of population health and disease prevention at the University of California, Irvine. And the U.S. recorded more than 80 million COVID cases out of, a, out of a population of about 330 million. So that gives you an idea of the ratio between those that got COVID and those that died. Are those accurate figures? Well, uh, I mean, I, th I think the 80 million is probably a bit underreported. Um, you know, most uh, home tests, the lateral flow tests that... Uh, your listeners are familiar with the the little lines on the on the pad of uh, a material under. In, you're hoping for one line, not two, uh, when you do those tests. Those tests are overwhelmingly not reported to uh, authorities, and so 80, 80 million uh, infections is probably uh, an undercount. But uh, you know, I mean, COVID is you know, a deadly disease and, uh, you know, 1 million Americans dying out of pr probably closer to 100 million inf infections uh, is, is you know, it's 
it's definitely pretty high. I mean, it's it's up there. I mean, I mean, most of the COVID deaths uh, have occurred in people 65 and up. Certainly not all of them, and and so it's it's not too unusual to see relatively high uh, infection fatality rates for older people. For example, with influenza, we we see the same thing that the infection fatality rate is higher among older people than younger people, but. I mean, COVID is something uh, to be taken seriously. I mean, I mean, a million deaths in two years is uh, is significant. Uh, just so your listeners have a sense, we typically have uh, about a mil- uh, three million deaths a year in the United States. The crude death rate, that is to say, the number of deaths divided by the total population, is usually around nine tenths of one percent. So, if you take zero point zero nine and multiply by three hundred thirty million, you get about three million uh, deaths a year. And and we've seen uh, you know three and a half million in the last uh, two years be, uh, because of COVID, and so it's a significant increase in in mortality. And in terms of the categories that you just mentioned of the deaths of Americans that are older than sixty five, of the million, about seven hundred forty thousand have been among those older than sixty five. So that's clearly the demographic that got hit hardest the most. Yes, I mean, and this is typical of infectious disease mortality, that uh, that older people um, have the highest mortality burden. That's because our immune systems slow down as we as we mature. Um, oftentimes, infants are also affected by infectious disease mortality. For example, for flu, infants have relatively high mortality rates, uh, but with COVID, it's 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 not the case. Uh, infants and children have actually very low mortality rates, and it's focused on uh, senior citizens. And of course, COVID came in waves, didn't it? I mean, the first wave, there were highs of 2,500 people dying per day in April of, of, of 2022. And then it came back, I guess, with 4,000 a day in early 2021. Yes, I mean, the mortality has come in waves. I mean, COVID is definitely a, a phenomenon that is uh, providing waves. And, you know, what's a, a little surprising to me as an epidemiologist, uh, and frankly, somewhat dis- somewhat alarming, is that we're seeing that the COVID waves come whenever they come. I mean, in the northeast of the United States, Massachusetts and New York, for example, they're already well into a new wave. And... In California, uh, I, I think we're in the incipient stages of a new wave. Cases are increasing. And, you know, I was expecting, and a lot, many people were expecting, a convergence to seasonality. So I, was, I wasn't, after the first few months of COVID, I wasn't expecting this ever to be uh, eradicated. But I was expecting that it would become rather quickly a seasonal phenomenon. So like flu in that respect. Not necessarily like flu and how many people it kills, or in its symptoms, but like flu in the fact that it would be on in the winter and off in the summer. And it would be cyclical, but those cycles would be predictable and seasonal. And what we're seeing is the way, not really cycles, but waves. The waves come when they come, uh, typically after a short trough uh, following following a previous wave. And uh, they just, uh, you know, appear uh, when a new variant appears. And it's, it's really quite... Concerning because, you know, influenza gives us a breather in the summertime and then comes back in the wintertime. But COVID just 
makes waves when, whenever it wants to, to make waves. And, um, you know, I, I hope that will settle down, certainly. And the highest death toll has been the state of California with uh, 90,000 deaths. So just in the last couple of minutes, I wanted to ask you, Andrew Neumer, about Dr. Jar, who's now the White House COVID response coordinator. He's apparently sort of, you know, shook things up a little bit with his recent announcement that in the fall and winter, the U.S. could potentially see 100 million new COVID infections. And this grim forecast has got some people questioning his methodology. He is, is, of course, asking Congress and the Biden administration is asking Congress to approve billions more in COVID funding. How can you make these predictions, given that it's six months out from when the prediction is, is supposed to happen? And six months ago, we wouldn't have known about Omicron, right? Well, I mean, uh, that's correct. I mean, it's, 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 it's complicated and there's a lot of moving parts here. I mean, the White House is trying to uh, pressure Congress for more uh, funding. And, you know, th- this statement uh, was widely regarded as part of that pressure. So, I mean, I, I think that's sort of, sort of one lens through which to, you know, re- uh, receive uh, that that prediction. Uh, the, and, and the fact remains that these new subvariants of Omicron, are, each one is is slightly more contagious than the previous. But the, the compound effect of more contagious, more contagious, more contagious is that we have a virus that's very diff- challenging to stop. And, and, and I don't I don't even think stop is necessarily the right way to frame it. But it's 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 highly contagious and a lot of people are going to get it uh, with, with or without masking, although I would encourage your listeners to mask at the grocery store and in other in other public places. And and, and we know that uh, reinfection is possible. So someone having had it once isn't a guarantee that they won't have it again. And we know that vaccines don't prevent infection. Uh, and, and that's a very unfortunate fact. Um, but, you know, pe- breakthrough cases are commonplace at this point. So a breakthrough case being a, a case of COVID in a vaccinated person. So, you know, with all that as backdrop and the, uh, the incredible transmissibility, I, I think we, we could well see uh, 100 million more uh, COVID cases. And so... I'm loath to criticize uh, the White House office on on COVID for putting that pr- uh, projection out there. At the same time, I would I would uh, remind your listeners that Dr. Ja himself has been very cavalier about uh, all of this, uh, going to the White House correspondence dinner without a mask on, for example. So, you know, I'm not I'm not really sure what to make, uh, quite frankly, of those statements. Well, Andrew Neumann, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Andrew Neumann, who's an epidemiologist and professor of population health and disease prevention at the University of California, Irvine. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. 
And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone Oh